This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Instructional Design and Technology Program at Emporia State University. The IDT program at ESU prepares individuals for leadership in design, development, and integration of technology into K-12 as well as private sector teaching and other areas of organizational training. We know that institutions have access to more student data than ever before, but it's hard to really grasp what that means since many of the digital tools that colleges use are from third parties or companies that keep their algorithms private. And that makes it hard for students or professors or even journalists to get a glimpse inside. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. I'm Sydney Johnson, an assistant editor at EdSurge. This week, we're talking with Brian Short, who was a student at the University of British Columbia when he got curious to know what information the learning management system at his university had collected on him and how it was being used. What he found, once he got a hold of it, that is, left him feeling pretty uneasy. These days, he's a program director at the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association. And we caught up with him recently to hear the story about his hunt for his own data. And he shares what he thinks colleges could do to make that technology a bit more transparent. Here's what he had to say. Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Sydney. It's my pleasure. I'm wondering if you can maybe just start off telling us a little bit about what the Freedom of Information Privacy Association Association does in BC and and some of the areas that you guys are trying to tackle. Sure. Yeah. So we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, and we were founded way back in 1991, before there was any freedom of information or privacy laws here in BC. And uh, the organization back then was instrumental in passing um, what's now known as the BC Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. Um, And nowadays, we we do a lot of workshops and special projects um, around freedom of information and privacy issues and advocacy work um, because that act was passed uh, back in 1992 a lot's changed. You know, they were using fax machines Mm -hmm. back then, and now we have the internet. So some updates are in order. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know that before you started working here, and and this is kind of how I got familiar with your work, you had some experience researching and advocacy for privacy before you started there while you were a student. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. Um, How did that all unravel? Yeah, so it, it all started with uh, a job I had when I started as an undergraduate student, uh, or actually I was finishing as an undergraduate student at the University of British Columbia. That job was with the Digital Tattoo Project, which is run out of the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Technology uh, at the UBC Library. Through that job, you know, it, we were sort of empowering students to take control of their digital identities. One thing that we began to look into was how does the learning management system at UBC collect information about students and how is that information then used and stored and accessed and is there an awareness about this happening in the student population? And I credit um, my prompting to do that exploring to um, my supervisor uh, at the Digital Tattoo Project, Cindy Underhill. The Digital Tattoo Project seems pretty interesting in terms of just exploring identities through technology. Yeah, for sure. Um, So the Digital Tattoo Project was started initially for the teacher candidates at the UBC um, Education Department, so high school and elementary school teachers. um, As they were going out into the world and starting their careers and starting their practicums, uh, there became a concern that the lives that they were leading online through their social media profiles, et cetera, would have an impact on their professional reputation. So Mm. this is, you know, uh, a case 
case, an example of this would be, you know, a student or more troubling, a parent or a colleague looking up your social media profile. Um, and at that time, like this was kind of a new frontier. I think this was around 2006, the, the project began. So it was just sort of tailored towards uh, that relatively restricted sphere of, of, of teacher candidates and their professional jobs. But mm -hmm. as, as time progressed, it became a concern for students more generally and careers and, and jobs outside of teaching. And so the website um, that the Digital Tattoo runs is, is a resource website that has a whole lot of information for people who are looking to clean up their digital identities or take control over their digital identities. Mm -hmm. Jumping back, so you decided you would start looking into some of the data that the system that your institution was using had collected on you. How did you begin to gather that information and, and how did that process go? Yeah, so at first I was, you know, I, I just assumed that UBC would have some sort of very transparent piece of information about there, but what they were doing, how they were collecting the information and how they were using it. I was disappointed to find out that there wasn't just sort of one document that I could access and say, hey, this is exactly what we collect. This is exactly how we use it. This is the authority by which we collect it. This is the authority by which we store it and use it. So I, I went through the terms of use, and I think there was a section somewhere in there about if you want to get access to your data, the only way you can do it is by submitting a request under the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, which the organization I now work for uh, helped to bring into place. And essentially, this gives um, individuals the power to access their own information and information that exists about them. So I, I, I used that recourse. I submitted a, a formal request um, to the Office of, of Counsel at UBC for my information that was collected through the learning management system. And that sort of started this <laughs> system of chain reactions and snowballed from there. I mean, that's a pretty extensive reach to go just to get access to your own personal data. Yeah, it was really, um, I, I got to say, frustrating and, and disempowering. So when I submitted the request, I received, I, I met shortly thereafter with some of the managers um, at UBC from Information Technology and um, who worked directly with the learning management system who were in charge of facilitating my request. And they said, you know, we've never received a request like this before. We've mm. never heard any privacy concerns expressed by students. You know, this is a new frontier for us. I was comforted by the fact that they were taking it quite seriously. And from the staff side of things, they had put a lot of thought into privacy. But from the student side of things, it seemed like the student body wasn't putting a lot of thought into their privacy. They were just kind of trusting in the system that the system would work. So what did you find? So I found after quite a, a while, it wasn't a very straightforward process of accessing this data. It, took, it ended up taking over 60 business days. And then mm. I had to file a complaint with the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner, who then ordered UBC to, to give me the information. Um, but what I found was that they were collecting information on basically every single interaction I had with the learning management system from the time I logged in to the pages I visited, the amount of time I spent on those pages. And all of this data was sort of compiled into these statistical reports that were accessible by instructors and administrators. And... Uh, and I was kind of overwhelmed by that. And I, I mean, we all have kind of the idea in the back of our head that when we're using a digital system, there might be some kind of surveillance or some kind of monitoring going on on the back end. Mm -hmm. But to see, to see exactly how precise it was, uh, was unsettling. I mean, the promise of these tools is that like it would maybe allow instructors to see data to better evaluate how students are learning or how they're progressing. But from looking at it in the inside and lifting the hood, so to speak, 
What are some of the new risks that are created from a teaching and learning standpoint? My initial concern was that these could unfairly unfairly bias instructors against students based on kind of arbitrary statistical information. Like you log into the system and you leave the window open and you're not really using it. You're not really engaging with it, but it says that you are. It thinks that you are. And so maybe your participation grade in an online course is better than a student who would just, you know, log in quickly, log out. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that those are reflective of actual student effort or um, true to, you know, the academic rigor that professors would normally put into um, an in-class sort of setting. Mm -hmm. So so that's that was a real concern for me. Um, And then ostensibly, the the purpose of the whole thing was to, you know, identify. So I was told was to identify students who were struggling. Um, so they could offer additional supports for those students. And I asked, okay, well, you know, has the system been able to do that? Have you identified a struggling student, intervened, offered support, and have you seen the student, you know, turn it around? And they mm-hmm. said, well, no, it's, the data is not there yet. The system's not there yet. We're not quite there. So no, we haven't done it. And so in my mind, sort of balancing the privacy risks, the risk to unfair assessment against, um, you know, this potential outcome that does seem positive, um, I just didn't think it was worth it. And I, I should say that all this is to do with their old learning management system at UBC, which was Blackboard Connect. And they've recently switched to a new one um, called Canvas by Instructure. It might have greater capabilities in terms of learning analytics. Um, but, uh, but based on what I learned with Connect, I ultimately decided not to opt into using Canvas when I, at this point in time, was a graduate student at UBC and, and continuing my education there. When was this that you looked up this stuff? This all began in 2016. So before Cambridge Analytica, before some of these more high-profile um, data breaches, you seem like you kind of had an inkling to be interested in, and kind of concerned about data privacy. But do you feel like students even today are as aware about the data that's being collected about them and, and how it's being used? I, I think that students are more privacy conscious than we probably give them credit for. I think that unfortunately, oftentimes they look at it as you know, this is a sacrifice you might have to make if you want to have access to these services. So certainly mm-hmm. with sort of the Google suite, um, the free stuff that's available publicly through Google, you know, if you want that Gmail account, if you want to use Google Drive, Google Sheets, Google Docs, you just kind of, you give away your data. You just kind of been in gr- um, grin and bear it. But with, with a publicly funded institution, a, a university like the University of British Columbia, I think that there needs to be a divide there and say, um, you know, Either let's take this opportunity to educate students about what's happening in these systems with Google and et cetera, or let's design a system that doesn't do these things, or let's be transparent about the things that it's doing. I think that UBC has the opportunity and other universities have the opportunities to be really real leaders here in this space. Um, Instead of following the example of of industry where a lot of this technology has been developed and we've come to, you know, since Cambridge Analytica and since all these big events come come to sort of look under the hood of that. And now we've got a wonderful new term, um, surveillance capitalism, um, <laughs> thanks to uh, Shosanna Zuboff. Um, but that's not the model that we should be adapting for learning technologies. Can you explain that for some of our listeners who maybe haven't heard that term yet? Surveillance capitalism? I, I have to admit, I haven't finished her book, which is very, very long. But the concept is, um, this is sort of the, 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 a new form of capitalism that exists in these digital platforms. And it's sort of a mutation of capitalism where normally the exploitation would take place around natural resources, around human labor, around, you know, minerals and trees and those kinds of things. Now the, the thing that's being 
exploited is data, personal mm. information about people. Um, what what people often call digital exhaust, but is actually the byproduct of people interacting with these digital systems. Now, for students who are concerned about this, what's the alternative? Did you did you ask to opt out, and and kind of what were the options that you were given? Yeah, so that became what is not as well documented as the, the blog series sort of documents. The one adventure would connect. What's not as well documented was after that point, I. I decided not to opt into Canvas because I was unhappy with the way that my data was being collected. I was unhappy with the way that I had to go about accessing it. And I was proposing uh, the creation of a, a Bill of Rights around student data, a policy at the university that would say, you know, we can only do this, that with your data and, you know, enshrine rights above the law to, to students, you know, become a leader in the space. Um, so I didn't opt into the use of it. And it, it really caused quite a bit of tension for me. Um, and it, w- it put a, a huge burn on the instructors who relied upon this technology to, to mm. conduct their courses because um, they would have to email me things separately w- rather than, you know, just blasting stuff out to a class. And I couldn't participate in uh, discussions that were taking place off online through the learning management system. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately, I, I think it, it probably hurt my, my grades in, in, in certain circumstances. Hey, listeners, it's Sydney. We'll get right back to Brian's story, but first, a note from our sponsor. Are you interested in creating an innovative, technology-driven classroom where your students can thrive? Emporia State University's Instructional Design and Technology Master's Program can help you do just that. The IDT program is available entirely online, so you can complete the coursework from the comfort of your own home, and it's now offered in an accelerated format. If enrolled full-time, you can complete the degree in as little as a year. Given the diverse career tracks in instructional design, multimedia, and technology, this program offers students the flexibility to customize their course of study based on individual goals and interests. Graduates of the program are well-prepared to practice their unique, multidisciplinary profession in a variety of settings, including business, K-12 schools, higher education, government and military, or to pursue doctoral studies. Learn more at emporia.edu grad. That address once more is emporia.edu slash grad. So what do you think that these tools or maybe the institutions that use them could do to improve some of those practices? I think um, allowing people to use the systems anonymously, um, Mm -hmm. if if a student had a privacy concern, would be beneficial. I think um, reorganizing and sort of interrogating the way that they are achieving consent with students would be would go a long way so generally these are sort of um there's no options like you using the system you're opting in and you're allowing them to do these things but allowing some customization there, saying you know you can collect this for this use or you can collect that for that use but maybe not this one thing maybe i I really this is sensitive to me and i I don't want you to use this and so having options to opt in and opt out uh, a, a positive consent model and then transparency just saying you know we're doing this and we're doing it because we're hoping to help you, and then being able to provide examples when students ask and inquire, saying, you know, here's a case study of a student we help. You know, if, if you're going to have rhetoric around we're doing this to help students, being able to show and demonstrate that, th- that this does work. Now at your current workplace, have you looked back at this example or worked on any other education privacy initiatives um, now that you're no longer a student? Yeah, yeah. So, Right now, um, we're looking into uh, a project here in British Columbia that will look at our K-12 education system and mm-hmm. the products that are in use in classrooms here. 
Um, so school boards, publicly funded school boards, are often adopting um, the Google Suite, you know, Chromebooks and, and whatnot. Um, and they, uh, the arrangement seems to be that they'll receive the, the hardware and the software free of charge from Google. And the contract that's arranged upon through students, but generally their teachers, or sorry, their, their parents, because these are um, often children um, who are younger than the age of uh, consent in these cases, which is considered to be around you know, 12 or 13 years old. So the parents mm-hmm. will fill out the forms. And they'll say, we get access and we own all of the information that we can collect about you through these systems. And I think that that's an incredibly troubling um, relationship to have a young person and ask a young person to enter into. And I think it sets Mm -hmm. a really bad um, standard for them as they look towards creating their digital identities as they move forward in their lives, thinking, this is the model. This is how it exists. I give Mm -hmm. it all away for free and I get the product. I think that that's we're, we're going to see a move away from that in the, you know, the GDPR in, in Europe grants people certain rights of access and control over their personal information. Um, and I, I know that California is moving in that direction, too. And it, it's my hope that Canada will move in that direction. Mm-hmm. Where are you at with that project right now? So right now we're sort of at a sort of beginning stages. We've filed a lot of um, requests, freedom of information requests with school boards to get access to uh, privacy impact assessments. And mm-hmm. to find out if they are using um, Google Suite or I think Microsoft offers a, a similar product. And uh, then we'll be doing um, some focus groups in the summer with parents, with lawyers, with privacy experts tr- um, and students just trying to figure out, you know, how can this model ethically exist? And is this mm-hmm. the safest thing and the best thing to be doing? Yeah. I mean, do you have any obviously it's it's early days in this project to your question just there around how can these be ethically done or, or can they be? Do you have any early guesses or, or suggestions? Yeah, and I don't want to uh, speculate too much, but I've had conversations with, um, so the oversight body here in British Columbia, the regulator in the space is the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner. And we've mm-hmm. had some pre- preliminary conversations with them about this. And they, they see um, these big players like Google as potentially being able to offer greater safeguards than an individual school board might be able to offer themselves. Um, For example, you know, an individual school board wouldn't have the resources to employ the highest standards of information technology security, right? Whereas Google Mm -hmm. would. Um, The sacrifice to personal information and privacy aside, you know, maybe the data is safer with Google. Um, I don't know. I, Mm -hmm. my, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see what, what parents, um, what their perceptions of these are when they get sent home with a permission board essentially signing off on their child's, uh, all, all of their personal information, all of their data to uh, one of these large corporations, if, how they view that exchange and if they've thought, uh, thought it through. Um, what are some of your words of advice to students or, or parents who are concerned about this stuff and, and don't maybe know where to start? I, I would say start with a, you know, exercise your right to know. Try to figure out what information exists about you in the world and, uh, just by doing that, going through that process. I mean, if we don't use these rights, you know, they say you can lose them. And mm-hmm. I think that is the case. I was the first one at UBC to ask for my learning management data. I don't know if any students have done that since. But through going through that process, I became aware of, you know, how what my rights are in this space, how this information that exists about me could be used um, to my detriment. And then I also came to learn that, you know, it was there wasn't an expectation within the university that anybody would ever exercise this right to get my data. They needed to hire, uh, or I don't know if they hired it or hired this person, or they were just already on staff. But a person had to spend, you know, a significant amount of time writing custom scripts to go back into the system to extract this data. So there was mm-hmm. no system in place to 
to um, facilitate a request like this, which I would love to see become a regular thing. You know, people feeling empowered, saying, I want to get my data. I want to know how, what exists about me in the world so I can take control of that and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, become a good digital citizen. Have you gone back to UBC and, and kind of seen, I know you said now they're working with a new LMS, but have there been any other changes since you wrote that blog series or um, what was sort of the, the follow-up after that all unfolded? So there was, when the new LMS came out, I, I looked at, at the terms of use and I think that there was a little bit more transparency there in terms of the amount of information they were collecting. They were, they were more specific about clicks, timestamps, that kind of stuff. Um, it wasn't quite what I would have wanted to see, but it was it was a little bit of an improvement. I then um, I contacted, so I, I tried to work with the university and within the university system to to bring about some change. I contacted the um, the student union for undergraduate students and graduate students, and the ombudsperson for students, um, and we all got together and met with somebody who who oversees this learning management system and tried to open up a discussion about um, you know some of my concerns. It didn't really go anywhere. The student uh, undergraduate student society didn't see this as an issue that students would care about. Um, they, th- it was their belief that they had the best interests of students in mind as elected officials, and students weren't concerned about their privacy. So this was kind of a, a non-issue, a non-starter for them. Do you feel like that's changing? Like if we were going to have this conversation on campus today, um, do you feel like it would be similar, or do you feel like stuff has has changed in the last year or two? I don't know. I, I'm, you know, in 2016, when I was starting to think about this stuff, I thought that, you know, there would be an event in the near future. Um, many people were prophesizing, saying, you know, this next big leak, this next big event is going to be the thing that makes the world care. And things kept coming. Like there was the Yahoo one. There was millions of pieces of information breached. Uh, Equifax. Uh, and then, of course, Cambridge Analytica. And I was pretty confident at that point. In time. I was like, people are going to start caring about this now. And, you know, it hits the news and maybe... For a few months, it's it's a big topic, and I don't know. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I honestly, we, we haven't seen the event yet that will make um, everybody care. And it's, you know, it's it, I think it's just a matter of time before we do. All this criticism that I'm placing against the University of British Columbia and their learning management system is done in a spirit of, of trying to make things better. And, you know, I, I, I love the University of British Columbia. I really appreciated being a student there. I learned a lot, and I credit the university for all of that. And I, I would hate to be seen as sort of a pariah upon the university. I, I really was doing this in the spirit of trying to improve things. Well, Brian, thanks so much for chatting with us on the podcast. Yo, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the EdSurge On Air podcast. This episode was edited and produced by me, Sydney Johnson. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. And tune in next week for more on the future of education.